I'm Fiona. I'm Kenneth. And welcome to The Fly. How are you doing today, Fiona? I am doing wonderfully. It was a beautiful February day. 80 degrees, sunny, stunning. A little uncharacteristic of February. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's unseasonably warm. It's true. I mean, I was sitting out on Healy Lawn just now, you know, looking at the beautiful buildings and throwing the frisbee. Uh, and I was actually listening to a podcast, too. Really? What podcast? It's called Ink Stained Wretches uh, by Chris Steyerwald. Chris Steyerwald. You know what's funny about that? What's funny about that, Fiona? We just interviewed him for The Fly. And we're about wow. to share that interview with you <laughs> right now. Well, I mean, I loved what he had to say on his podcast, but I mean, I mean tell me about him. Let's hear it. Oh, he's the politics editor for News Nation, contributing editor for The Dispatch, previously worked for Fox News, and when he was 17, he wrote baseball box scores for his local newspaper. That's right. I remember now. And I mean, we talked about a lot in our interview with him. I mean, we covered how he broke into journalism. We talked about what it was like to testify in front of the January 6th committee. It's a lot. Um, we even asked about aliens. Uh, so. <laughs> so if you want to hear about journalism, January 6th, and of course, aliens, keep on listening. All right, let's jump right in. We are sitting here with Chris Steyerwald. He's one of the GU Politics Fellows for the Spring 2023 semester. Thanks for being here, Chris. Totally my pleasure. Good to be with you guys. Welcome to The Fly. So let's fly right into it. Oh, hell. <laughs> you got into journalism at 17. True. Tell us about that. Well, um, I my father was a very gentle man and a kind man. So when he told me that I would have to have a summer job for the summer after I finished high school, I didn't take him seriously at first. Um, I thought that the time that I would spend running up his tab at the country club uh, would be much better spent uh, for me. Um, but I realized belatedly that he was quite sincere. And so the only job that I could find was working at a hot dog, working for a hot dog cart. Now, a hot dog cart, if you lived in Manhattan, would be a one kind of thing. But if you lived in Wheeling, West Virginia, it would be another kind of thing. And I would be one of one hot dog vendors in Wheeling. And I realized that people would see me there. My parents or my friend's parents would see me there coming in and out of the federal courthouse or wherever. And I became very alarmed. But then I found out that I would be asked to wear a paper hat with a dancing hot dog cartoon on the hat. And I... I don't know whether you know this, but there is nothing as fragile or delicate as the ego of an adolescent male. It is truly... I can confirm. It is truly... You know the that balloon animal <laughs> art that the woman accidentally knocked over in Miami, the $45,000 sculpture? That is how fragile a 17-year-old uh, boy's ego is. So I could not allow this paper hat situation to take place. And so, uh, given the gift of desperation... I saw the newspaper building. I knew that I knew the publisher, uh, and I went in uh, improvidently and asked to meet with him, which he improvidently did, and I asked for a job, and I got one, uh, writing sports for the Wheeling Intelligencer. And um, one of the great blessings of my life is that I did not ever have to wonder what I wanted to do for a living um, 30 seconds after arriving in the sports department of the Wheeling Intelligencer. Um, it was uh, the wonderful feeling of finding your people. And uh, I have impossibly 
manage to support myself and uh, some small humans um, for, I don't know what the 25 years or whatever, um, as a full-time writer and journalist author. So it's uh, pretty, it's pretty remarkable to me. It's something I'm grateful for every day. Mm-hmm. So how did you shift from writing sports uh, for, uh, back back when you were 17 all the way into the politics sphere? Well, I think um, it's very important for journalists. I think it's very important to learn all of the parts of the business. Um, and many great writers, um, news, uh, newsmen and newswomen uh, worked in sports or started in sports. Fundamentals aren't different. Um, I, I think one of, I think lowered barriers to entry uh, from the digital era are beneficial in many ways of bringing new voices in, uh, increasing competition, many, many things are, are positives. But one of the problems is that there are so many ways in that people may not do the requisite work on, you know, I think of journalism not as a profession. You don't need a specialized degree uh, to be a journalist. Uh, I think it's a vocation. I think you have to be called to do it. I think it has to be something that you want to do. Um, I think that it is like being a teacher or being a firefighter or whatever. It has to be something that speaks to you and that you're called to go do. Um, Because if you don't, you will not be willing to put in the requisite time uh, and to do the scut work that you have to do, um, you know, the, the you will hear as a young person many times people say, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. This is not true. This is absolutely false. But there is truth in it, which is that if you love what you're doing, you will be willing to do the work, right? You will be willing to do the necessary things to go where you want to go and be who you want to be. So part of that blessing of receiving uh, vocational inspiration so young, um, I was not aware how shockingly underpaid, uh, I was not aware how shockingly overworked um, until I was already established in my career. So one thing that, one of the many consequences of the depletion of local news in America the depletion of opportunities for young people to start out learning how to do the work, uh, whether it's starting out writing up American Legion baseball games or whether whatever it is, that those are the places that people learn their trade. Uh, if you go to an elite institution like Georgetown and you're very smart and you have good connections and you get a job at a fancy place covering national and important stories, uh, that's fine but it is not a replacement for writing four or five stories a day or doing the kind, if you're in television uh, or the video side, being a one-man band or a one-woman band, going out, getting your own stories, editing your own video, doing all of that stuff. Those things are, are necessary. And if I may, they're particularly necessary because the study of journalism, the, the object of journalism is humankind. And human nature and human nature is immutable from the town council to the baseball diamond uh, for the high school to Congress, to the Supreme Court, to international relations. 
human nature is immutable. People are throughout time and always will be humans. Uh, humans are the best and are capable of really amazing things, but humans also fall victim to the same kinds of foibles and the same deficiencies uh, throughout time. So, and regardless of station. So what I learned was that the people in Wheeling, West Virginia, were not different from the people in the Capitol in Charleston when I went on to go cover uh, state politics and do that stuff. Those people were not different and the people in Washington were not different from Charleston, right? When I, when I got to the capital city, I thought, well, now we're here, we're at the show, this is the big time. But then I realized those people weren't any different than the people on the city council back home. And then when I got to Washington, I thought, okay, now I'm really here and these people are gonna be different and better and superior. And they are not. Uh, and I, I mean that in, in both ways, right? Um, they're as good as and as bad as the people everywhere else. And one of this, which points to the lesson I wish I could share with so many people um, about Washington and about politics. The people here are not different from the people in other places. And the people who are here are mostly, and when I say mostly, I mean 90% or 95% of people trying to do a good job and trying to do the right thing. And most of the failures that we see in our politics and our government stem from human nature and uh, our inability to cope with exigent problems and our inability to foresee the future, and most particularly, our inability to control our own passions uh, that are true everywhere. Let's dive into your shift to politics a little bit. What drew you to conservative politics specifically? Well, um, that's an interesting kind of question. Um, I don't care how people vote. I honestly, obviously, we all have our own points of view, right? Um, but I don't really care how people vote, and I care less and less about how people vote. Um, I, I, uh, I live in the District of Columbia, so I don't really vote. Um, <laughs> the uh, I wrote in my sister for president uh, in 2020. It's um, as a journalist, it's not my job to be a conservative or to be a liberal. Uh, it's not my job to be a nationalist or a progressive. Mm -hmm. It's my job to be an honest broker uh, and to tell people the truth, whether they like it or not. It is true that I have worked at conservative outlets, um, but I have always tried not to be. I, I have have plenty of opinions about how thing. I have a lot of opinions about how people are doing things from a what's likely to work, what's likely to not work. How do you run for office? How do you not run for office? How do those things go? But I try hard to stay away from telling people which policies or which points of view they ought to follow. <laughs> so um, your listeners should know that you're sharing one notebook and we need to get more resources for the fly <laughs> so that you have a second notebook so that you can Kenneth, where did your notebook exactly. go? Oh, that's a, it's actually a funny story. Um, I bought a notebook at the campus bookstore mm -hmm. uh, the other day, but I left that notebook in my room mm -hmm. and the elevators are broken in mm -hmm. Harbin Hall mm -hmm. at Georgetown right now. Mm -hmm. So if President Jack DeJoya is listening mm -hmm. to this episode of The Fly, 
We're going to need to fix the elevators in Harbin Hall. I like the, I like it's a layering of excuses. It's like wrapped. It is excuses wrapped within excuses. I'm I like built this. for the media. It's, uh, you're ready to go. You're ready to go. You're ready but, to go. No. So talking about excuses, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of excuses that were floated in the media um, around the entirety of January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, you testified in front of the January 6th committee mm-hmm. um, about uh, basically the election night call mm-hmm. uh, that Fox News had for Arizona pretty early in the night. We talk a little bit more about that. We don't know to go super into the details of the administrative side, but what was that like at the decision desk and afterwards? Well, um, I guess I would say um, that's, that is a, a large and expansive question. Um, I would say that It is very strange to have something that happens in your own life uh, be a front page story. It is very strange to have a personal experience uh, be national news. Um, It's also strange because as journalists, we should keep ourselves out of the story, right? It's important as journalists that we not be the story, but that we cover the story. And most of the best work that I've done relates to getting out of the way, keeping myself out of it. When there's a good story to be told, there's that's really the best thing that you can do. The best thing you can do as a journalist is get out of the way of a good story. So I'm always um, reticent, um, hesitant about weighing in too much about my own personal experiences. Um, but I will say this, the, it is very understandable that so many people in the Republican Party were not willing to accept the results of the 2020 election because so often they, and this includes obviously some voices at Fox News, um, uh, had been fed a consistent diet of untruths and exaggerations. So if you think about it this way, when the news we, we live in an era of highly siloed, very partisan media. Certainly. Um, and there is a substantial competitive advantage in creating strong affinities based on emotional attachment um, to core audience groups. So if you think about it this way, at the zenith of the post-World War II um, media landscape where you have three main networks, a couple of very influential newspapers, a couple of wire services, and that's about it. Um, The news ecosystem is dominated by local newspapers. Every town has a couple. Every town of any size has a couple newspapers. Um, Newspaper readership and subscription is very high. And the saturation of individual television news is very high. Something like a third of audience, third third of the country um, on any given moment is watching one or the other of the networks. It's compared to now where it's highly fragmented. Um, a successful cable news broadcast now may have two or three million viewers on a given day. Uh, those are rounding errors for the old newscast. So in the days of yore, uh, before my time, the competitive advantage belonged to the one that could attract the largest audience. 
How can you attract the most kinds of people, north, south, east, west, Protestants, Catholics, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats? How do you bring in the broadest number of kinds of people and make a product that will be broadly acceptable to them? The same the same decrease in the barriers to entry for news that we talked about before have their own effect here. So as competition um, proliferates, the focus of the business ceases to be attracting the broadest possible audience and becomes how can we maintain the small audience that we have? So you change attraction for addiction. Mm -hmm. How do we keep the same people coming back again and again and again? Now, one obvious part is to tell them what they want to hear, right? They're good. The other people are bad. They're smart. The other people are dumb. They're patriotic. The other people hate America. And you can see it anytime you want, right? You can thumb through Twitter or you can scan through the cable news channels. You can see affirming narratives repeated to people. And that obviously has its own problems. But the larger problem comes when you have to tell them something they don't want to hear, right? And certainly Fox viewers did not want to hear that Donald Trump was going to lose re-election. And when you do that and you and you break the stream of, you know, affirming blabber, um, it's it. I understand why voter. I understand why viewers and voters were upset and I understand why they were so angry and they were angry um, and their anger then manifests itself in the decisions that other people make. But as journalists, we have to be very clear eyed about this. The difference between the news and entertain new, the news can be entertainment, but the difference, uh, the news can be entertaining, but the difference between news and entertainment is that sometimes we have to tell you what you don't want to hear, right? We can tell you what you don't want to hear in a loving way. There's a theologian who said that the truth without love becomes too hard and that love without the truth becomes too soft. So certainly you can tell the truth with love. You can tell people hard truths, but you can tell it in loving ways mm -hmm. so that you, they don't feel, maybe think about it this way. If somebody from George Washington University said that they thought that the politics program at Georgetown was trash, would that make any difference to you? Probably nope, not. You wouldn't care. You'd be <laughs> like, you couldn't even get in. What do you care? Lame. But if an alumnus of this storied institution said, I have some concerns about what's going on and I want to talk to you about it. How would you receive that? Right? Loving criticism, somebody who is coming from a place of trying to help. The kind of what a lot of what passes for journalism now is fake toughness, right? So if CNN talks about how bad Fox is, does it do anything to Fox? It has no effect. If Fox talks about how bad CNN is, does it have any effect? None, because it won't be heard. All of the recent revelations that have come out about Fox have been blasted from the rooftops of many major news organizations. I doubt that any of the loyal core of Fox viewers, those millions of people, will care because they don't believe the source of the of these claims. Um, that's why, you know, the problem in media is a demand side problem substantially. It's not that people wanted better things. Um, it's that the media business, the news business gave people what they wanted, right? 
And there's definitely an analogy to be made about the obesity epidemic in America, which is why, how did Americans get to the problems with obesity? How did we get to the prevalence of type two diabetes? How did we get to these, to this place? It's because the companies who make delicious food got really good at making delicious food cheaply, right? And it became cheaper to eat delicious food than it was to eat healthy food, which is the reverse of how it used to be. Once upon a time, and for most, when I say once upon a time, I mean for 100,000 years, um, it was more expensive to eat the food that was bad for you and less expensive to eat the food that was good for you. But with the wonders of technology, it became very easy for the poorest people to have delicious cheeseburgers and tacos and milkshakes and all of that stuff. So we, have a similar supply and demand distortion that has happened in news. You can now cheaply and easily provide people with a, a reaffirming stream of blabber that will tell them what they want to hear at all times and never anything that they don't. And you can do it for the cost of a microphone rig uh, and, a, and a URL. And the problem much as to carry forward the the analogy, the prom, the way that we are confronting the obesity epidemic, we tried make them put the calorie counts on the menu. Do we try tried to control the supply, but ultimately it's an educational uh, problem. It is an it is a noetic problem, right? Um, it is human nature is a way. People want to hear the stuff that they like. They want to be complimented and they want to be told that the people who are different from them are bad. That's mm. how people always have been. Um, you know, if if the Roman Empire had had uh, cable news, it would have been a lot like current cable news. Right. The, the, this is the same. It is, you know, Marcus Aurelius is a groomer <laughs> and whatever else. Breaking news. Caesar exa stabbed on steps. Exa exa exactly. Exactly. You know, Brutus is blamed. But really, isn't it Mark Antony? Um, mm. So the we have to our job in the media maybe I can put it, it's corny, but you'll have to indulge me. There is no American journalism without Americanism. Mm -hmm. I have to understand that there are limits on the things that I can do to make a living based on wanting to do good and be right for this country. And it's easy and even self-interested because we enjoy extraordinary safety we enjoy extraordinary privilege, and we also enjoy the fundamental protection of our rights in the United States in a way that doesn't exist other places, right? Um, I often tell the story, there's an ongoing, um, the ongoing trial of a Arizona county official who is in prison for the murder of a local journalist. And the local journalist was investigating uh, this man, and police and prosecutors say he killed him for it. Now, in the United States, that's a huge like, whoa, I can't believe it. How would that be received in Russia? Be like, what What did you think was going to happen for asking questions? Mm -hmm. How did you think it would turn out? How would that be received in China? How would that be received in much of the world? Also, in many places in the world, uh, libel law and the protections, the First Amendment protections that we have for inquiry here are, are much less, even in developed nations. Um, so... If that is all true, 
then I have to act in a way that reflects that truth. I have to, uh, much as the question of every great uh, religion is, okay, now what, right? So if that's true, if these things are true, then how shall we live today? Mm -hmm. So if it is true that I have exceptional liberties and freedoms as an American journalist, how should that shape the work that I do? And I have to not do the cheap, easy way. I have to hold myself to a higher standard because I owe a debt to the framers of the Constitution and the million men and women who died at arms to preserve, protect, and defend it. But it is also true that we as citizens and consumers of news have special obligations. And the only way that we get out of where we are, and I think it is happening, by the way, um, the only way we get out of where we are is that the demand changes and that people see junk food news and reject it. And they know, right? Again, this is a knowledge problem. Okay, I see it. I'm aware of what happens. So I'm going to reject my desire, right? I'm going to drive past the Krispy Kreme. I'm not going to go in even though the hot and ready light is on. And I'm going to keep going because that's not the right thing for me to do. We have to understand that as consumers, we live in a, at a time where unlike almost all of human history, you can get as much information as you want all of the time, more than you want all of the time. Yeah. So we have to be better at regulating ourselves. How do we go about solving the demand issue? Does it start with civic education, increasing literacy when reading news sites? What do you envision as a solution? Well, I think this is this we're, we're doing it right. Yeah. This very conversation, uh, the important work that the GU politics does, uh, what we're doing here. You know, why am I here uh, as a fellow? Because I want to talk to you about it. Um, and the fact that you want to hear it, that your listeners want to hear it and are interested in engaging on this, this, this is it. We are, we are doing it. Um, obviously, from an educational policy standpoint, civics education is crucially important. You cannot know what to ask a government to do if you do not know what a government can do and what it's for. If you're not familiar with the system and you don't know how it works, then you are much more likely to fall victim to demagoguery and mm -hmm. charlatans, uh, that is for sure, um, and a real understanding of what the First Amendment is. But also, you said the magic word, literacy. And it's not just news literacy. It's teaching the deeper literacy. It's teaching kids in school the deeper contextual literacy because literacy isn't just decoding. I write about this in my book. Uh, literacy is not just decoding characters on a page to get the word, you know, when you if you travel and you're trying to cope in a country where you do not speak the language, you can use Google Translate and kind of like find a way to get through. But you're not literate. Right. Mm -hmm. And many Americans today, I think the statistic is 57 percent of Americans. And this is wrong, but in the ballpark of Americans couldn't read at a sixth grade level of Americans, uh, 16 to 65. So we have a problem. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the core literacy isn't just about proficiency in decoding those characters. It's understanding the context of what they are. And to make matters even more esoteric, video is really powerful at communicating emotion and feeling, right? You can 
show things and you can create sensory uh, people can look at a video of falling snow right and it can evoke the feeling or you can see people arguing and feel connected to the energy of the moment but it takes words to understand ideas you cannot show a picture of freedom you cannot show a picture of equal protection under the law. Now we can have icons, right? We think about uh, Norman Rockwell's painting about the desegregation uh, of the Little Rock schools, right? That says a lot about equal protection under the law. I believe Ruby Bridges. Um, that says a lot, the tomato splattered on the wall and the US Marshals walking her into school. That says a lot, but you have to have the context and real literacy it involves history, it involves the culture, it involves all of those things. And we have to prioritize that and civics is a big part of it. Absolutely. So on this podcast, we always like to tie things up a little bit with a nice little lightning round. Okay, ready. Short response questions, just a few of them real quick. We're gonna throw them at you. Number one, do you have any pre-show rituals? I don't know. Um, I will give you. I will give you a piece of advice. Um, when you ever feel this was uh, given me by a great uh, gal who uh, she her her life her life reflects the value of the wisdom. If you are ever nervous, if you are ever scared, take your shoes off and jump up and down. Go outside if you can, but jump up and down and let your feet fall hard on the ground. Uh, I don't know why it works as well as it does, but it works fantastically well. So it does work. It works. From experience. It work, I do it. And if you can't be outside <laughs> and you have to do it in a hotel room or in a green room or wherever, jump up and down hard and you it, it does something. It connects you to something and it shakes you up and it's a good thing to do. There we go. Start jumping up and down. There you go. Jump yep. up and down for it. Okay. Go to coffee order. Black coffee. Got it. Easy. Yep. Respect. Number three, uh, we've been shooting a lot of stuff out of the sky lately. Okay. Aliens or no? What do you think? Well, I know it's the lightning round, um, <laughs> but I guess, I guess I will say, um, where are they? Well, I mean, they're all across the country. They're but, what, but what I mean is, <laughs> uh, uh, and this was, uh, I forget the physicist who the, this uh, question is named for, one of your brilliant listeners will obviously let you know who it is. But um, if what we think about aliens is true, how come they haven't shown up yet? Right. How come they have not? How, co how come we have not found them? More importantly, how come they have not found us? If the argument for life in other places is the infinite scope of the universe and how many places and how many things you feel like. Uh, we would have heard. I'm open, certainly open to the possibility, though. Have you ever watched Ancient Aliens on the History Channel? No, but I've seen the memes. Okay. I've definitely okay. seen the Aliens dude, dude. Okay. And I aspire I aspire to have his uh, savoir-faire uh, in television interviews. I think you might need to add it to your media diet. Okay, that could be good. Diversity. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Well, Chris Dyerwald, thank you so much for joining us on the fly today. We had a great conversation. Totally. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, 
make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of The Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.